Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us on this very special International Day of Education. UNESCO has chosen as a theme this year, recover and revitalize education for the COVID-19 generation, and we're thinking about that as two big pieces. One is recovering and getting ourselves going again. Lots of things have been disruptive, lots of things have happened, but we also are looking ahead. We don't wanna go back. There were additional ways that we've had the pandemic changing the way we see the world or each other and many other things have happened. And so today to deep dive into where we need to be going is our good friend, Melanie Brown from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And she has a very special responsibility there looking ahead and looking to the broader picture of equity in education and in all of society. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us here today. And we look forward to hearing how you see where we're going and where we need to be going and how we can take advantage of this special day to move us all ahead. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the invitation and the opportunity to chat with you today. Um, I, I, uh, it's amazing that we're here when we think about, um, you know, 2020 and, and what we thought the year was going to be and now into 2021. And the, and while there's hope, of course, with vaccines and, um, you know, we know that the world is, is still suffering greatly um, from all the issues that it was suffering with pre-COVID. Um, and the, the way that we've seen all of these issues just exacerbated um, over this time. And when you really think about it, before the, the pandemic, we had a, a learning crisis. Um, there was a learning crisis in the US, there was a learning crisis globally. 53% um, of students in low and middle income countries and 87% of Sub-Saharan Africa were unable to read a simple text by the time they were 10 years old. Um, we also know that uh, I remember, and I'm sure you remember this as well, Mark, that when COVID first hit, we were uh, saying things like it's the great equalizer, right? Um, that, that we were all experiencing it as the world, but we know that we were not experiencing it in the same way. And even here in the United States, we're seeing that black and Latino communities are being hit extra hard by the effects of COVID across education, across housing, across um, health, of course, and health disparities. And so when I think about the challenges that we had pre-COVID and of course the challenges that, that COVID has, has unearthed for us now, we can't go back, right? We, what would we be going back to? It doesn't mean that, that um, nothing was working, but we really have to ask ourselves when we think about education, when we think about sustainability, what can we do through education to really help our world, our communities, our countries thrive? What can we do to ensure that we're not just building back better, but that we're reimagining, that we're innovating, that we're thinking about things um, that perhaps we had never thought before. And I think about um, all, you know, there's lots of talk here and, and I know it's globally about how behind students will be. 
and we both need to think about how we um, how we fill those gaps. But we know that those gaps are built upon gaps that already existed, and so just trying to fill those gaps uh, is not going to get us where we need to be. We really need to accelerate the pace of change. We need to accelerate the pace of learning. We need to innovate at a time when the world is really, I think, crying out for help and showing us that our failure to focus on equity in the past, our failure to think about sustainability for everyone, we really missed the mark before. And so this is, this is in some ways a great reset. It's a hard reset, um, but it exists an opportunity like no other that I've seen in my lifetime to really rethink about, uh, to, to really rethink what it takes to, um, to educate our, the world's children and the future. Well, it seems like you're into a concept of, you know, that standing on a broader society-wide conversation that probably moves to some short-term, what are we gonna do about this pandemic and school and all of that to long-term, how do we change society and culture? We got some, you know, hundreds and thousands of years of certain kind of ways of being and in our own country, but around the world, we have aspirations for a better future for our kids and for all. How does the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation see this next phase? Because you're, you have a kind of a global overview that very few of us have. Yeah, so let me, um, that's a great segue into a little bit about my role. So I've been at the foundation for five years. I currently sit on the foundation's North America team. Um, the sub team that I sit on is our public engagement and insights team, and we're a unique team at the foundation. Um, and to your point, we do have that broad purview. We are uh, strategically flexible. We try to build relationships with constituencies who we know care about our issues um, and who we know uh, we need to work in partnership with to see the, the uh, solutions come to bear. And that work is specifically focused, as I said, on North America. So those are building relationships with constituencies living in the United States, living in Canada, but looking across uh, a wide swath of work that the foundation does. So not just our work in U.S. education, which is a lot of what my background has been, but also our work in economic mobility opportunity and thinking about, of course, because of COVID, um, how our work shows up around uh, around health and, and the gaps in education that we've seen. So what we've done um, early on in COVID uh, at the foundation was really respond from an educational perspective to the moment. And so creating uh, school reopening guidance um, when we thought that this was something that we would get through a little bit faster than it seems that, that we have is really uh, supporting districts and schools and state leaders to think about you know, how do they make the best decisions safely um, about when they reopen schools. Uh, also, we know that this period is really traumatic for students and it's also traumatic, quite frankly, for adults. Uh, and so we have um, supported and, and funded the development of guidance on school for school and systems leaders around social and emotional learning. Um, and really understanding that children, even when they are logging on and, and having a virtual learning, that they could be presenting with traumas and, and how do you support teachers to deal with that? Um, also providing teachers online resources and on-demand resources. I used to be an educator. Um, I say once an educator, always an educator. I taught middle school and high school 
uh, English um, here in Washington, D.C., where I live. And I know about this search of when you, you've, you've got the students coming in, in this case, not physically, but virtually, and you, and you need to understand or you need help with a lesson. Um, so we've really done a lot of work to provide teachers those resources as they've made the shift from impersonal learning to, to virtual learning. Well, and oh yes, please. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, and 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 just two other things that that I that we've done uh, from an educational perspective in this moment is um, helping districts with their infrastructure for remote learning um, by you know providing really immediate response in the early days of COVID uh, to help them with technical assistance and their infrastructure, and then also supporting uh, college advising. As we know, a lot of students, especially first generation students black and brown first generation students are um, there this disruption in their post-secondary education they may not be able to make up and we know that having that one person who cares about them who can connect with them who checks on them through an advisor uh, can, can really be that thing that keeps them going and so we've resourced also um, a college advising corps to ensure that students are staying connected and that's something that that I really worry about is who are those students who we actually haven't heard from, who haven't logged on, who we don't know uh, what they're dealing with, be it academic loss, be it trauma happening in the home, um, be it be it death, right? I mean, they're like family members from COVID and other issues. And so that's why I think we cannot, we know that we weren't addressing a lot of those issues before. So we have to pay attention to them in this gap, but also build those systems that don't let those same kids fall through the cracks like they were doing pre-COVID. It seems like the, one of the kind of contributions in a big way from the Gates Foundation is the ability to look at a lot of different things simultaneously and then to have the ability to say, okay, this could be tackled at a high level. But I also know that there's a underlying messaging about this pandemic being a kind of a warning that in fact, um, this can and does happen and to act otherwise is not just foolish, but deadly. It can happen at any time and it could be much more deadly or spread faster. It, you know, we don't know it's a virus, it's biological. It's not something directly under our control at all times. So when you're thinking about conversations about next year, the year after, from the Gates Foundation that's gonna have a high consciousness about how do we be resilient? What are some of the elements that the audience watching today from really from all over the world, what are some of the elements of that process of thinking about this was a warning? Mm -hmm. As people, we can prepare, what should we be thinking about and doing? Sure, and I would say that um, the foundation is a large organization. And so the answer to that question looks different for a vaccine team than it does for our team thinking about economic mobility and opportunity and our team thinking about public education. Um, but for me, the work that I do, and, that, and my work has shifted in my five years at the foundation, but as I said, it's, it's focused on public engagement. It's really that public piece, right? This idea that it's a warning how do you communicate to people, to communities, many of which have um, lots of reasons not to trust what you're saying, not to trust science, not to trust so-called experts? Um, how do you communicate and 
not just to, but with that community in partnership with that community and say, this is a warning sign. There were, I, you know, I can say just from a, from a personal anecdote, you know, talking to family and friends about vaccine work at the foundation pre-COVID, they thought, oh, that's, you know, that, that doesn't relate to us, right? We're in the U.S., we don't have to worry about that. Um, and now all of a sudden, uh, we do, right? And we know that these were issues before, but they just weren't necessarily on people's purview. They weren't something that everyday Americans woke up and thought about pandemics, right? Americans didn't wake up every day and think about vaccines uh, to, to a certain extent. And so what I really think about is what is that public piece? There's a lot of technical solutions that we can put into place, but how do we cut through the misinformation and the disinformation and the distrust that is for communities of color rooted in, um, in reason, right? There are reasons not to believe this warning sign beyond other warning signs. And so that's really what our process is, is how do we build deeper relationships across communities of color, across faith communities, across communities who may not necessarily agree with us on a number of things, but this is about sustaining, surviving people's health, people's livelihoods. And you have to be able, you can't cut through that if you don't have trust with communities, if you don't have, if people don't believe that you're in it with them. And so that's how I've been thinking a lot about my work. Well, we've been uh, able to use this new Zoom and other technologies uh, to do a lot more learning from other people in other parts of the planet. So it's uh, been very interesting to learn from other countries who've done a much better job of tackling this. And that's really all over the planet, but especially in Asia and parts of Africa, very, very successful stories. We've been using it also to learn from others about a certain kind of truth and reconciliation processes. South Africa and Sierra Leone have a lot of lessons that we've been able to think about and learn, and especially important here in Minnesota, Minneapolis specifically. Are there places and points of contact for learning the lessons of other countries, other people, other communities, other villages, et cetera, on education that you can point us to and help us learn from others? Um, I actually don't think that that's a question I'm able to answer. Um, I, I, I don't feel I have the um, a good enough sense of, of uh, from an educational perspective, a lot of my work has focused on the U.S. experience. I would say that that there are very much pockets of um, uh, innovation, things that that we see. Uh, one of one of the, the portfolios of work that I hold is a, is focused on rural America, and um, I'd love to. If folks are not aware, there's a project called "I Am a Rural Teacher," and they they elevate the stories happening. Uh, across rural America and the ways in which rural teachers are are innovating in this moment. For many of them, having access to broadband is not new, right? Or, you know, having limited access, that's that's not new. That's new for a lot of us, um, but, uh, you know, trying to have multiple devices log on into a house uh, and have them on all day uh, are, are new challenges that, that many of us are facing, but for a lot of folks uh, living across rural parts of our country, and of course, apart, uh, across the world, uh, that's that's not new. So I can definitely speak about the the U.S. experience and how we see pockets of innovation. The question is, how do we take those pockets of innovation? How do we take that one teacher, that one principal, that one superintendent, and how do we begin to scale that? Right. And you don't scale that by pulling out the technical pieces of it. 
it's it's that it's understanding the technical pieces and then understanding the personal pieces right people have connections to places to communities to students they know the people they know what the needs are they know how to speak with people and how do we begin to do that and that's very hard to do as a large institution but that's where you know our investments and our strategic investments in people who are the closest to the work and as I said, as you know, I've been at Gates five years, I've been in philanthropy for 13 years. And one thing uh, tried and true is that you invest in people who are closest to the problems, mm -hmm. right? They see it firsthand. They know what it feels like. Um, it doesn't mean that those of us who, who study it or who uh, work on these issues don't have anything to offer, but it's that combination of the lived experience and the, and the um, uh, sort of you know, academic expertise uh, and of course, the resources that allows us to to begin to fully realize a lot of these solutions that I that I do think we have at hand. Um, I don't think that there are. Um, when I think about innovation, I don't necessarily think that we need completely new ideas. I think it's how do we take some of the things that we know work, and perhaps push ourselves to have some of the conversations that we just haven't been willing to have in order to achieve what we actually know is right and needs to happen for all lives to have equal value. I mean, this is a very important perception and concept that you have. And I've been thinking about the, the ways that, um, you know, I grew up in a small town. I think of myself as from rural America. And I think about education. Of course, my mother was a teacher. I trained to be a teacher. So, but the notion that we can um, share that information in new ways because we have, you know, digital and we have Zoom and all of that, but also we are maybe more open to thinking, oh, I could learn something from a rural community or, you know, hard conversations are hard conversations. Sometimes a Zoom can bring us, if we've been to any family reunions, we might've noticed there were some conversations that should have happened maybe a few generations ago. But, you know, I'm thinking about the ways that the workarounds that have been used for some things, and you were referencing now in your home, and I can speak for many people, you know, we have the same experience. But for example, um, some kinds of exchanges are only possible for some percent or small percent of the population, some kind of travel and, you know, et cetera. And we've been unable to do that. And so we've maybe rolled our eyes at first, but then we've dived into virtual visits and virtual exchanges. And I can, you know, uh, think of things that have happened that could not have happened in person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what might be the implications of that for how dispersed we are, how some resources are limited, can we use the workarounds that then have opened our minds to take education and learning to a new interactive, a new more globalized, a more diverse, more culturally enriched place? Um, do we have the human creativity and courage to make that leap? What do you see? We definitely have the creativity. Uh, the question of courage is a real one. Um, I think that we're in a moment uh, in our country and in our world where um, that courage, I think, is going to make the difference between um, how we ultimately respond to this moment. Um, I think about my own personal courage and, and something that I, you know, I always tell myself is I sit in a place of privilege, even though 
there are um, things that put me at a disadvantage being a, a black woman in this country. I also work at the Gates Foundation. I've, I have a secondary and post-secondary education. Um, you know, I, I live in the United States. Like these are all things that give me privilege. And so having the courage to risk that privilege, to, to speak out when I see that, that things are not fair, that are not equal, um, is really what we need at this point. If we tell ourselves, I think if we come out of this and we're searching for some big idea, um, I think then we haven't learned the lesson, right? And what we've seen is that, yes, there are really amazing things that have happened because of this technology and this Zoom and we can connect with each other. And, you know, I'm not flying to, to Minnesota or you're not coming here to DC, but we're still able to connect. And we've had many conversations over the last few weeks and we've been able to connect. And so how do we understand that even in this distance, we have that opportunity to connect, but it is that courage piece. It is that willingness to have those difficult conversations, to talk over our difference and our distance and understand what is the world like for me? What am I experiencing right now? And it's not that what I what I think a lot of us um, who, who work on issues that are both in the US and, and are global, which it's getting to the point, quite frankly, what I've seen is that these issues are, are just, they're everywhere, right? This idea that, that a pandemic issue, as we were saying earlier, is over there and something that we don't have to worry about, or people not having access to broadband is over there and not something that we have to worry about. All of these issues are, are sitting right here in front of us. And the question is, do we have the courage to say, this is not working, this is not sustainable as a society. We are, we are not, um, what I like to say, we are not maintaining human dignity and have the courage to say that and the courage to change it. So I think the creativity is there. I think there are really great things that we've learned that, that work. Um, um, from a distance perspective. I mean, just think about the, the impact of, of um, uh, the, the carbon uh, impact of people not flying all over the country. I mean, I would have been uh, in the last you know, year or so to so many different countries and flying to Seattle and going to visit family and friends and all of those things didn't happen. Um, and so there's some positives that come out of this, but what we can't do is allow the distance that we need to be healthy, to stop us from being close to one another, from us having the courage to connect to one another, because that's what we need now more than anything. Um, and I and I, I don't want to go on too long, but some colleagues and I were talking about the movie Groundhog's Day, and that you know much of 2020 felt like Groundhog's Day, right? Like we were living the same day over and over and over again. And you know, there's there's lots of lessons in that movie, but one of the biggest ones is that it's not when he tries, you know, he keeps going through the motions and going through the motions and almost kind of like, you know, using people, right? Because he's living the day over and over and over again. But it's when he stops, it's when he makes connections, it's when he looks beyond himself that he's able to move on from that cycle of what for him is like, quite frankly, hell, right? Yeah. Like nobody wants to live the same day over and over and over again, but it's when we have the courage to live the day differently, to connect with people differently, to have those courageous conversations about race, about inequality, um, about uh, opportunity and access that, that we get to move on. And I think we're at this period, it is a reset, but it won't be that reset if we stay in this pattern, if we, if we don't have the courage to get out of this cycle and recognize that we are hurting 
as a community, as a country, as a world. I, I can't agree more. And I want to put an exclamation point about your inspiring us by your words and inspiring us to think about the hardest thing, which is the courage, whether you're in politics or philanthropy or learning or educating or raising or whatever it is, you've helped us to see the things we have to keep in our minds as we go on, as we try to get ourselves out of Groundhog's Day. And you've inspired us to keep that in our mind through your example and through your words. Thank you so much for joining us Thank here you. today on International Day of Education. Bye now.